Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleure of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Obo Chicago selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reads? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code double read dish three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. It is like late. So if I feel low energy, it's because I am kind of low energy. And when I say late, I mean it's 8 p.m. But if everyone will remember that I'm an early riser, it is getting very near my bedtime. And so I'm feeling a little cranky pants. (laughs) It is literally 8.07 p.m. I'm tired. Let me go to bed. (laughs) Well, you've been doing really good about your 5 a.m. run. So that's probably why you're so tired. Oh, yes. And tomorrow, wait, no, day after tomorrow is my very first 5K. I don't know what I was thinking. I signed up for one. I'm feeling ready to win this race. Yeah, you're going to win it. I definitely think I'll be first place. Oh, I'm so excited for you. That's going to be great. My goals are to don't fall, don't walk, don't quit, don't get sick. If I can do those things, then it's going to be a victory for me. Those all sound perfectly reasonable and achievable. Yeah. So it'll be good if I can get some sleep. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) How have you been lately? Super busy. My days feel like they are planned to the minute. Mm. which I don't know. I am kind of a person who runs on stress. So it's, it kind of, I feel really good when I go to bed (laughs) because I'm like, yeah, I did all the stuff I meant to do today. And I'm really proud of myself. Like I called my wife after it was the day that I both renewed the uh, registration on my car late and also bought a parking pass for the the university late. And I called her. I was like, you're going to be so proud of me. I am driving legally and parking legally. And she was like, oh my God. Living my best life over here. (laughs) I was legitimately so proud of myself. But um, otherwise I've been practicing a ton. I actually took an audition on Sunday. I've been gigging. It's been busy. It's been crazy. Oh, and hanging out with Luna. 
Well, before we get into that anymore, I feel the need to clarify for people who cannot tell us apart. That is Galit who was doing all the illegal things. Jackie is a legal beagle. (laughs) But um, I like how you slyly slid in there that you took an audition. How'd that go, girl? It was good because I won. Oh my gosh. Yay. So, I mean, you've been talking about how busy that you were but you just had this success. So how has practicing been fitting into being busy in jam-packed days? Well, practicing not as much as I wanted to, but the quality of the practicing was really good. Like I immediately pulled out my recording app and would record my excerpts. And it was an interesting experience because number one, I got lucky because all of the excerpts that were chosen from the list were excerpts that I felt really confident on. Mm-hmm. And I was in a really good headspace because I didn't really feel like I had anything to lose by taking the audition. And I just walked in there, sat down, played down the list, only made like some really, really minor mistakes, and then felt really good when I walked out of the room. And that's not my usual experience with auditions. And I think a lot of it has to do with the podcast and talking to so many people about auditions and performance anxiety and, you know, listening to how so many people deal with it and uh, my relationship with perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And I've been putting a lot of work into walking away from the perfectionism and walking toward being myself. Mm-hmm. You know, do you remember what Alex Klein said in his interview about how you you can go in there with unrealistic expectations and be disappointed when you walk out, or you can go in knowing, okay, based off of my preparation going into this and my knowledge of my strengths and weaknesses, I can fully expect X, Y, and Z to happen. Mm. And that's been really helpful for me to just think, okay, I'm a human being. I'm not a robot. So it's okay if I don't play completely perfectly in this audition. And I felt so happy and lucky and grateful to have been chosen. There is so much to be applauded about just taking the audition, Mm -hmm. taking a risk and trying. I think that if you focus too much on the result, if it's a positive result or a negative result, then you lose the attitude of growth and learning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a interview with Anthony McGill that I go back to constantly to kind of help my musical mindset. And in it, he talks about the value and how much we should admire ourselves for just knocking on the door like what you were talking about, that there are people in this world who do not knock on doors for the fear that they won't be open to them. And so they never take the chance. So it's about choosing to engage in this art and make ourselves vulnerable. But it's also exactly what you're talking about, submitting that proposal that did not get selected. Pat yourself on the back for knocking on the door you know, yeah. uh, submitting your resume to the resume round and not getting through. You deserve to acknowledge and congratulate yourself for knocking on the door because there are so many people who hold themselves back. And if you keep knocking, a door is going to open. And in the meantime, 
give yourself credit where credit is due. And that is advice that has really helped me exactly what you're talking about, not measure everything in this binary, a win or a loss. Right. Yes, exactly. There's something to be gained and learned from every experience. And if you view it that way, then every experience can be a win, even if you're disappointed in the outcome. And my favorite, favorite thing was when I texted you that I won, you called me and squealed into the phone, which is, first of all, so special because listeners, Jackie hates talking on the phone. <laughs> so it's always me calling Jackie. <laughs> and it was just so like, I just, I felt so happy and loved when you called me and were like, oh my God. <laughs> It's true to my introverted nature. The phone is not my um, first choice. <laughs> so yes, if I talk to you on the phone, you should feel very loved because usually I will avoid it if I possibly can. <laughs> I did. I felt extremely loved. <laughs> well, similarly, I've been having kind of crazy days and having to come to terms with not being able to do all of the practicing that I want to. I think that's just kind of the name of the game. So for me thus far this semester is I'm not able to get as much done as I would like. And so I need to, again, kind of give myself credit for doing what I can. And Mm -hmm. it's been helping me to really prioritize, you know, Um, there are days just based on my teaching schedule and whatnot, that the amount of practice that I want to do is just not reasonable. There aren't the hours in the day. And so holding myself accountable of, okay, what can I do? And what is my minimum standard for myself on those days? And Mm -hmm. to balance those days, the ones that are less jam-packed, what do you need to do on those? Just having a plan on what is realistic, sticking to that plan, and then giving myself credit for sticking to the plan that's, you know, how you have to go about it sometimes. What's important to you? What is the priority? And don't beat yourself up if you can't get every single thing off the list. It's, that's just not in the cards sometimes. And actually, I think there's a lot of value in going into a performance situation with a varied practice schedule. Mm -hmm. because as we know, routines always get disrupted (laughs) as life goes on and gets more complicated. You may not get that regimented time. And I think there's a lot of value in saying, okay, I have 35 minutes. I'm going to get this and this and this done. Mm -hmm. And then I have to move on to something else Mm -hmm. and still feeling okay. Oh yeah. And as you know, your career expands, travel can really impact the days leading up to your performance. And you still have to play well, even if you're jet lagged and exhausted and didn't get to play for two days. Yeah. If your reads act different, it it doesn't matter. You have to be flexible. So yeah, I'm just kind of living in and loving changing the type of expectations that I have for myself and giving myself more flexibility to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish in different types of ways. It's kind of a cool space. It sounds like you're kind of going through the same thing. Yeah, for sure. I also, as you were saying that, I was like, is this Jackie? <laughs> like, who is this person? I am just like hanging loose, staying up past 8 p.m. Wild child. 
<laughs> Watch out. No matter where you live, Double or Nothing is there for you. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double read players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double read tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable readmaking supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, and it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student read knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or read tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish Euridice Alvarez, Assistant Professor of Oboe at Baylor University. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here talking to both of you, and I'm very excited about this interview. <laughs> Could you introduce yourself to our listeners by telling them a little bit about your background, how you came to the oboe, and your educational path, how you got started, your story? Yeah, well, I was born in Honduras in Central America, um, and my dad happens to be a classical trained pianist. He's a musician, and um, he taught choir in my high school for many years. He played trombone, accordion. My whole family on both sides, they're all crazy. They play guitar, marimba, they sing crazy in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) I come from a family of musicians, actually. My mom sings, my brother plays cello, and you know, it's, um, I went to church when I was growing up, and my dad was the music minister, um, so I was exposed to music since I was born, actually. So um, I used to sing a lot in gigs with my dad in many weddings in church since I was five years old, I think. And then when I was seven, when I could read, uh, my dad taught me piano, and I was a little like, you know, taking lessons from my dad. He was a strict so I'm like, I don't want to play piano. And then he was like, well, you're going to go to the conservatory then. So he and 
enrolled me in the School of Music, uh, Victoriano Lopez, in our city, in San Pedro Sula. Um, and this is kind of like a conservatory type. It's a school of music that is in the afternoons. So I used to go to regular high school in the morning from 6.30 a.m. or something to 1. And then this school of music was from 1.45 to 6.45 um, every day for five years. And uh, to enter into the school of music, you have to go through a um, um, test of aptitudes to see if you can be a musician, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and, um, you know, they do, a, a, you have to sing, you have to do rhythms back and forth, and they measure notes in the piano high. It's mainly like an aptitude test. Mm -hmm. uh, so I passed the test, obviously, because I was, you know, surrounded by my dad in music. And, the, and then you do a week of test, more test, for history, music history, to see if you really are suited to, to be a musician. Um, and then they show you the instruments. And I was like, uh, hello, I'm short in stature. You know, I'm vertically challenged. I was 4'8 since I was born, I think. <laughs> so I knew I could not play double bass. There's no way. Uh -huh. uh, cello, forget it. Viola, <laughs> I don't think so. So that year, they were introducing the oboe and the flute. And I was like, huh, I think I can reach those two. <laughs> and, um, there's a session, I know it's funny, and they, they, they ask us, put three instruments that you would like to play that you think you can play. Um, and I put, uh, well, I like the violin, you know, and I put flute and oboe. And then each teacher will major you uh, physically, like your teeth, the palm of your hand, your fingers, your lips. Um, you know, if you could blow a reed, you know. So I went to the violin teacher, and he's like, pass this bow. Oh, no, your arm is too short. You cannot oh. reach the belt. Go to the flute teacher. I'm like, okay, first fail. <laughs> so I went to the flute teacher, and she made me blow into the head joint. She's like, hmm, you have lips and, che and, and the cheeks of an oboe player. Go to the oboe teacher, and you cannot reach the low C anyways. Your arm is too short. <laughs> I was like, okay, thank you for the support and encouragement. <laughs> So I went to the oboe teacher and he just looked at me like, uh, where's this little girl doing here? So he gave, me, he gave me a read. He's like, blow into this. I'm like, beep, 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 right away. And he's like, oh, okay, put it in the oboe. He already taught me to play G, A, B, C. He said, okay, you're going to play oboe. You can play oboe. And I was like, yay, I got an instrument. <laughs> um, so that's, that's how. How I started to play the oboe. And then my dad later on told me, oh my gosh, I wish you could have played violin or become a singer. This instrument is expensive. I didn't know these things about reeds and knives and tools. And I was like, I'm sorry, dad. Uh, but you know, I, I love it. And that's how I was chosen to play the oboe. I guess it was given to me. <laughs> yeah. The oboe teacher was the Hufflepuff teacher of your school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So talk us through the rest of your oboe development. How did you come to study uh, in the United States? Yeah, well, after the five years that I was in the Victoriano Lopez, um, you know, I played a lot and um, I was dedicated. I was full core, you know, discipline. And I really wanted to study oboe professionally outside of Honduras. Uh, sadly, in my country, there's not too much support for the arts by the government. So... You know, sadly, when you get to a point that you're very successful, you have to flee or leave and study somewhere else, like Europe or United States. So I have some friends actually at the University of Southern Mississippi where you are teaching the lead. That's and right. They were a, yeah, there were a few Hondurans that I went to school with. 
uh, at the Victoriano Lopez. And they told me, you, you know, you can get a scholarship, apply. So I applied and I got a scholarship there and Temple University and some other universities. But because my dad is a musician and he, you know, he went through the struggles of being a professional musician back home. He didn't want me to be a musician. Mm. Um, and in our culture, it's a little different. Parenthood, well, in my days, because I'm older, now it must be different. You do what your parents tell you until you get married. And, you know, and, and that's the way it goes. You cannot say no to your dad. <laughs> so he told me, please study anything else but music. I don't want you to starve. I don't want you to go through the struggles I went through. And actually, he enrolled me to the private university in Honduras. And I enrolled in the computer engineering. Mm. And while I was doing the computer engineering degree, I was teaching in the conservatory I just graduated from. So I taught at the Victoriano Lopez like from four years, I think, from 94 to 98. Mm-hmm. And um, I had eight classes left for the computer engineering degree. I mean, I liked it, you know, but I... I don't adore programming and calculus and physics for engineering and differential equations. You know, that gives me palpitations <laughs> these days, those classes. <laughs> so I, my brain is not meant for, for those type of things. And I was like, Dad, I, I hate it. I don't like it. You know what I mean? I'm doing, I'm passing the classes, doing what you told me. Uh, and then I applied for USM again, uh, and they gave me, you know, a great scholarship. And I told him, I really want to do oboe. I'm a musician at heart, you know. And, um, and he's like, oh, okay, I'll let you go. But please finish the degree. And I, I never finish it to this day. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, he was a little upset with me for a few years uh, because I didn't pursue that degree. But then he understood that, um, you know, this is my passion. This is what I love. And actually, I'm a musician because of my dad. Um, since I was growing up, the only thing I heard was Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, Verdi. Maybe until I was 28, I started listening to other type of music that, there was, that it was not classical music. So that was rooted in me, you know, that was very part of my being in classical music. So that's, that's why I came here and I did my undergrad at USM with Dr. Patricia Malone. Kali, you know her. I love her. <laughs> I know, and, and she helped me so, so much and she was the most general generous, kind, so uh, great teacher to me, great mentor to this day. Um, when I asked, Dr. Malone, my reads, calm down, you reach, calm down. <laughs> so to this day, I, uh, I have a very close relationship with her and she has come to some of my recitals, you know, and um, we were just together at this past IDRS in Tampa. And uh, so she was my mentor and then she encouraged me to apply for my master's in performance and I was going to go either to UT or Baylor, but Baylor, um, I met Dr. Deloach. I came to the campus and um, I don't think I came to the campus. I don't remember, but I know Baylor offered me a really great scholarship. And, you know, as an international student, um, a scholarship is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get different type of scholarships and fees and all that is just totally different. Um, and it was a better fit for me. And I adore Dr. Deloach and... I also like Dr. Henderson, high respect. Um, but, you know, Baylor offered me more scholarship money. So I decided to do my master's there. And I was at Baylor for, for two years. And then I was a little burnout, <laughs> tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, well, what if I do performer certificate or artist diploma? 
while I wait to do my doctorate. And Dr. Delos is like, no, do your doctorate now. I'm like, <laughs> okay, ma'am, yes. <laughs> so um, I just follow her advice and I auditioned to like five schools. And um, I went, you know, I auditioned for Mr. Kumar Arisman. I took a lesson with him first and I, I adore him, you know, the way he teaches and He's the legend in this country for mm-hmm. all pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to audition and, and he told me, are you sure you want to do a doctor? This is very intense here. I'm like, yes, Mr. Kimura, I want to study with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, but the comms, you know, and the academic classes. I, was, I didn't know what I was getting into, really. I was just like, I adore the oboe. I adore this man. I'm going to make reads and practice. But uh, um, I was not fully aware of how hardcore Eastman was Mm -hmm. regarding academics and the camps, exams to graduate, you know. Um, But he told me, you know, I I accept you. I like the way you play, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up doing my my doctorate Eastman. It was was rough. (laughs) It was cold. Mm. (laughs) It was full of snow for a week nonstop. Um, But I I really uh, treasure my time in all these three institutions um, also to this day, Dr. Deloach and Mr. Pumer and Dr. Patricia Malone are mentors to me. They guide me and I ask them advice, you know, and they have been great teachers to me. So that's, that's my whole oboe career. I think I, I said everything I was, everything you asked me, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Could you think back to when you moved from Honduras to the United States what was that experience like and what advice would you give to other young music students who are either studying internationally or considering studying internationally? I bet that was a a big culture shock. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was a culture shock, maybe um, in the customs that are different here than in Honduras. Language for me, English has... I mean, I'm, I want to be humbly humble and say that it was it has been easy for me. I studied English way before, and I was in an English institute, and um, so English was not a barrier for me that much. Um, maybe some classes that were a little complicated, but it was mainly the culture and um, something as simple as you you can stop here to cross the street, the car will stop, the car will not kill you. In Honduras, the car will not stop when you cross the street. <laughs> the car will kill you. The car will kill you. You have to run for your life. So, uh, you know, the food was very different. But that was hard for me to adjust. Um, and just the the environment, you know, um, we're really, I don't want to say loud, but we speak fast and we're very friendly. We hug a lot, you know, very, very affectionate. So that was very different. Um, the advice I will have is like practice, 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 focus, have clear goals. Don't waste your time. Don't party that much. <laughs> um, you know, they, they really, if they come here uh, on a scholarship and this country opens the doors for you to study, take advantage of it. And it's a blessing. It's a luxury. Um, I think it's is. It's amazing that, that some of us had the opportunity to come here. And in other places, you don't have that opportunity. So I think I, I highly uh, you know, advise the students to really take advantage of the opportunity. Get Bs and As. Don't get Cs and below. Uh, practice every day as much as you can. Keep the standard high. 
take care of your reputation, make wise decisions, watch what you say, <laughs> um, get along with everybody, don't burn any bridges. Uh, and something that is hard these days, I guess, is be nice and kind to everybody mm-hmm. and accept everybody for what they are. And, you know, I think that would be my advice to international students. It's harder because um, you cannot work outside of campus. You have to work inside campus. You have limited hours. But I think everything is possible if you put your mind to it. Um, and it's just working really hard and creating um, a reputation that, that you deserve the scholarship you were given, you know. So just, just treasure it. As a follow-up question to that, you have been on both sides. You've been an international student, and now you are a mentor, much like your mentors were to you. And I would love to know what advice you would give for other collegiate teachers who are welcoming international students into their studios, and how can they best support them and be there for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think just know, maybe get to, get to know the culture of the country the student is coming from. Um, You'll be surprised, like for example, in Latin America, Mexico is different than Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Costa Rica, uh, Colombia, Bolivia. Everybody has a little bit of different um, things, different foods, different um, ethnicities. And also understand that maybe some students might be a little slower are learning certain things. Uh, and some might be faster at learning other things. But sadly, the way the scholarship works, um, you can only work 20 hours on campus. Working outside of campus is not allowed. So sometimes that salary is not that much. You you have the sponsor through the I-20, but just understand that they might not have, um, some of the basic needs might not be covered. So I, I usually, if I have international students on institutions, I know there are churches that can give, um, you know, plates or, you know, a bed, a mattress or something. So I try to help the students in that sense, and there'll be something to help them with. Um, I will also encourage them to to focus in their studies and nothing else, um, to really give them maybe other tools like an internet and other websites that they can find help if they don't understand something. Also, sometimes um, uh, most professors don't know there's a writing center because English is not easy for everybody, especially the writing. Even for me, I remember writing a paper before like at 5 a.m. Oh, my God, just do tomorrow at 8 a.m. I'm still on the third page. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, writing center is good, but it's not that great sometimes. So they might need an American friend that can check the paper. Okay, you grammar this and that. I advise that a lot. Um, so it's just understanding that um, maybe some mannerisms, some sort, some things that they might say, they might, I don't think they mean to offend in any way. It's just that it's different from culture to culture. So I will teach them how to act here, what things to say, what not to say, um, and, and mainly immerse in this culture, you know, so you're respectful to the American culture and you're, and the teacher also understands their culture. That's, that's mainly it, I think. So before we get too far from your oboe origins, when you talked about doing a degree in computer, is it, was it computer science or computer engineering? 
um, it, it's computer science here. Computer yeah. science. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had this sudden curiosity of wondering if all of those computer left brain classes found their way into your oboe teaching. Do you ever use those really concrete left brained um, <laughs> analytical ways of looking at the world when you're teaching the oboe? Yeah, a little bit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I still have friends from that degree. We have a WhatsApp group and we still talk to each other. It's funny. Yeah, I will say that I micro-analyze more scores and music in, in a way than other people will do. It even bothers my students sometimes when someone else, oh my gosh, you're a nerd. Why are you analyzing this this bar, this major? <laughs> Uh, that might be one trait. Then also, I just highly respect those people, you know, in the, in the engineering computer world that they, their mind just works a little bit different. Uh, with remaking, I used to do it, but not that much. And um, so I will say it's mainly uh, when analyzing scores and mm-hmm. analyzing the music mm-hmm. for phrasing, for rhythms, for group notes and stuff like that. I, I tend to do a little more. So you really dig for the concrete facts. Yeah, yeah. And now you find yourself at Baylor, which is where you had gone to school previously. What is that like to follow in the footsteps of your mentor and be the next uh, chain in that legacy that you were once a part of as a student and now as a professor? Yeah, that has been like, I'm still like pinching my skin. Am I here? Dr. Deloach is going to come in any minute and she's going to give me, <laughs> she's going to tell me, practice your skills. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm following humongous shoes, like I say, uh, a great legacy of uh, one of the great pedagogues of oboe in this country. And, you know, I, I, I take that very seriously. And for me, it's a privilege to be here uh, teaching a Baylor. I ha- there some of my old professors are still here teaching, and I just I feel it's a, like a full circle for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, I, I was coming into a family because I already know how Baylor works and the faculty and everybody, and uh, I just feel like a home. I don't know how to uh, describe that. Also, because at Baylor, when I was a student, I lived in a house for international students, um, and that really helped me to you know, through my master's. And so Baylor always felt like home to me. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's an honor to follow um, Dr. Deloach's footsteps and, and her teaching style and, and everything that, you know, she left here at Baylor. So I just hope I don't ruin it. <laughs> I just hope I do a great job. And, you know, I, I try every day to, to do what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. I would love to know, what are some of your top tier priorities in your pedagogy? What are some things that, you know, when your students graduate and leave your studio, like what are some of the two or three things that you want them to remember the most from from their oboe education with you? Yeah, I think uh, these days, believing in themselves. Mm. That's very hard these days, I think. It's really hard. Yeah. And owning your strength and your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And then not comparing yourself to anybody else. You, you know, everybody is different. Everybody comes from different environments. And just to hold and to embrace 
what they can do best. Um, if it's vibrato, more phrasing, more, you know, uh, play more dynamics or uh, I'm very are singing. I can play piano really well. You know, some always, we are so self-critical. Well, masochist actually. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we, we, we always like, you know, I don't know, we're so judgmental of ourselves. And I find that with oboe and the students, and I would like for them just to get out of here. Okay, I can do this. Um, if I really put my mind into and I work really, really hard, I can do this. But also knowing, like I said, the strength and weaknesses, because I, some students, I, I always tell them, and this, my teacher from Costa Rica told me this, there's always 20,000 people like you, 20,000 people that play better than you, and 20,000 people that play worse than you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, like um, owning the reality of their abilities, I think for me is, is very important these days. And in addition to your duties as a teacher and pedagogue, of course, you maintain an active performance schedule. And before we get into that more, how do you go about balancing the two and making sure you make the most of your practice time, given that your schedule is so busy and jam-packed? How do you achieve that balance? Well, I'm still trying to balance the <laughs> balance my schedule. If you have any ideas, please let me know. No, um, it is very hard. It's very hard, especially for me. It's mainly balancing remaking and practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like when am I gonna make reads for me? When am I gonna practice? I am. Everybody knows this. I am not a morning person. My brain starts working like around nine thirty, ten, maybe. Uh, so I'm a night person. So usually I do everything after I'm done with the with classes and everything. Um, I don't know how I still have energy. Well, I still, I'll drink some coffee and then I'll have some energy. <laughs> but uh, I, I do most of it at night, like after I'm done teaching. After dinner, you know, I, I will make reads and practice. Because as a student, I used to practice really late at night, like midnight to 2 a.m. Wow. I, I became an owl. You know, <laughs> so I, I am not, my, I'm not, I cannot do anything in the morning. I just, my brain doesn't work like that. But yeah, it's a little hard sometimes. Some days I, I can only make reads. Some days I can only practice one page of, you know, Beethoven 9 and that's it. And <laughs> so I have to really manage my schedule really well and prioritize what I have to practice, which passages I have to practice. And I think for me, read making is is very important to have working reads all the time or, well, reads that can vibrate and, you know, they can function. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been a little bit of a challenge um, this, this past year because of the change of uh, work that I had. But I think I'm managing a little bit better on the weekends. Also, I do a lot of practicing and um, I tie a lot of reads. So they're already tied for the mm-hmm. rest of the week. Um, so I think that's, that's what I'm doing most of the time right now. Do you ever struggle with performance anxiety with recitals or orchestral performances or master classes or all of the millions of things that you have to do? And what techniques do you use to deal with that? Yeah, that's an amazing question. Um, you know, for me, maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. Maybe because my, my brain, my jalapeno blood, like I say, <laughs> Um, I, for me, meditation doesn't work or teas or banana uh-huh. or pasta. 
I've tried all those things and it, it doesn't, it goes to my hair. We have a saying in Spanish, like if something doesn't affect you, it goes to your hair. And you don't have a lot of curly hair, so it goes there. So, um, so for me, if I practice the music a lot, that gives me confidence. I have anxiety and, and maybe not anxiety, but I get nervous. I get mm-hmm. nervous mainly one thing recently that has happened is my elbow gets full of water and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to get water in the high A, the high C. Mm. I have a lot of high notes. Why is this composer putting a lot of high notes? And then I get mad at the composer. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> so something that has helped me is like breathing. I remember Deloach having this exercise of breathing in six beats really slow and then breathing out for six beats really slow. That helps me. And then I also do stretches with my arms right before I go to play. Um, and I try to think uh, that nobody's against me. Mm. <laughs> nobody's there to, to, to kill my oboe and cut it in four parts, you know, that they're just going to listen to music and that actually I should make them their, their hour or 30 minutes better. You know, they should get out of there less stressed out the way they came in. Um, and most recently, what has calmed me down is just to remember where I came from. That's mm-hmm. kind of silly to think of that, but I just remember my family, my parents, my country, and the situation um, sadly Honduras is going through right now. And that reassures me I should be thankful. I should be thankful for what I have. I should appreciate it. I think the nerves will always be there. Um, I have seen interviews with amazing, famous artists and they still get nervous. But it's just having peace in my heart that I practice as much as I could. Something else that helped me is something that Alex Klein said once in a masterclass. He said, I go to perform knowing already that this passage might work. It might not work. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I don't know why Alex Klein saying that because he can play upside down the oboe, you know, <laughs> on a, on, inside a river. So, <laughs> but he said that, and I was like, "Huh, that's a good point." You know, he, he says, "You know, I might not play fast. I might, I might miss some notes." But he already goes on stage knowing that, and that gives me more peace of heart, knowing that I, even though I practice this passage like thirty thousand times, it might work, it might not work, and I have to be at peace with it. Um, that sounds kind of weird, but I don't know. That helps me somehow. Um, but I do tell, tell my students, we have um, lectures on anxiety and um, stage fright, you know, and I, I have a list of books that talk about that. I have handouts um, that cover everything from what to eat, what to wear, meditation, yoga, uh, breathing exercises, because everybody's different. So different things work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tell the students, get to know yourself. Like if you get anxiety, do you sweat? Do you start getting palpitations? Your ears hurt? Your eyes get all weird? Do you cry? Do you scream? Mm-hmm. Do you start jumping like crazy? What, what is your body doing? So, you know, I think the first thing is getting to know what your body is going to do and trying to sort of accept that and then try to see how you can address what your re, the reaction of your body is doing before you perform. Um, so I, I teach my students to learn what, what they're going through. Also, um, we have a lot of stretches, exercises for arms and, um, you know, just relaxing the body. 
I tell my students also to go, go, go chase a squirrel. That will give you, <laughs> you know, go chase some, something. <laughs> and that will give you, uh, you know, that releases the stress a little bit. And I just remind them, why are you doing this? And well, we're, we're masochists. Remember, we, I said that. But why are we playing the oboe? Why are we doing music? Uh, it's a beautiful art, you know, and, and just to put your mind on that and not to let any negative thought come into your mind. That's really hard sometimes because you're mm-hmm. like, oh, my rate, man, my rate sucks. My rate's bright. My rate is too hard. What is my rate going to do? My oboe might crack in half. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you think of the worst and uh, it's hard. It's hard to teach that, to put, not to think any negative thoughts about yourself before going to, to play. So there's many things that I tell my students with handouts and books and uh, lectures that might help them overcome that is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I just deal with it maybe a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. It's, it seems like it's based in making your body feel good, putting your mind in a good place, right? Like thinking about mm-hmm. the gratitude and how far you've come. And sometimes I even like to think Galit from 10 years ago would be so <laughs> proud of you for doing this now. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, and you're right. It's so it's different for everybody. And I like that you said, it's not even about denying the physical symptoms, but accepting the symptoms mm-hmm. and yeah. saying, okay, just because I feel like this doesn't mean that I'm going to have a bad performance. I'm just going to feel like this. And that's how I feel when I perform. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, even for me, my what happens to me is my, my mouth, my throat gets so dry. Yeah. I, I tell my students, it's like the Sahara Desert. <laughs> the Arizona Desert, all the deserts combined is bare my throat. <laughs> and I drink so much water and then, oh my gosh, I need to go to the restroom. This is my blood. <laughs> so, you know, I already know I need, I need to bite my tongue to produce saliva so I don't get it. <laughs> You know, it's different for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) What is some of your favorite repertoire to play? Um, Do you have favorite pieces or is there a style or composer that you have championed in the process of doing your research as a professor? Yeah, well, I adore Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. I've heard of him. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not that guy in the Baroque period that used candles. Who is she? Uh, who, 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 who was that guy? Um, like I said, I grew up um, with my dad listening to a lot of classical music. And he, he liked Bach a lot. And the other composer I adore that didn't compose anything for the was Chopin. Mm. Um, Scriabin. I love Scriabin. Uh, but pieces for me that I love to play... Of course, it's a Bach Mass B minor. Yes. That's one of my favorite pieces in the whole world. I had the privilege to play it twice. as first, Actually, three times. Two as first oboe and oboe de amor and once as second oboe. And I, I'm just literally in awe when I listen to the craftsmanship of Bach. It's just incredible. Um, also, I adore St. Matthew Passion, St. John Passion. Uh, so I, I love Baroque period a lot. Um, one piece that I adore to play a lot, I just, I just played it twice in my life, is Scheherazade. I know it's kind of weird, but, you know, I, I think it's one of the most amazing um, composers for every single instrument. So idiomatic. 
and I think I think uh, Korsakov really take that instrumentation class seriously. <laughs> uh, uh, also, I love Mahler. Um, I adore Mahler the way he pinpoints all these different uh, colors and combinations of timbres. You know, it's just incredible. So I adore those composers, um, but also because my dad is a pianist, I also like everything related to the piano repertoire. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think Brahms, you know, symphonies, I, I, I like Brahms. Um, I should like everybody else, but no, I just like those. <laughs> yeah. Is there any piece that you'd love to play that you haven't played yet? Yeah, well, I would like to play it, but in a way, I don't want to play it because it's so exposed and I'll be having my Sahara Desert throat. <laughs> it's a Puccinella. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I had the privilege to play it once. Uh, I was sobbing for the first oboist in Cheyenne Symphony. She was sick. And we just read through it once. And I was like, oh, okay, 1% of this piece, that's okay. <laughs> um, but I, that's one piece that I never played. And I, I would love to do it before I depart this world. <laughs> <laughs> what are some past performances that stick out in your mind as absolute favorites when you look over the course of your career thus far? Yeah, well, actually going back to Mass B minor, when I played that um, as a first of all, first of all, more, I, I, I really had a great time playing that. Also, when I played a Mahler 5, I have um, a friend in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and he teaches at Montgomery College, and they have a festival every summer, Masterworks Festival. And I got to play Mahler 5 there with them, and that was really amazing for me. It was a great experience. Also playing chamber music. Um, actually, right now with my colleagues in the faculty quintet, I adore chamber music. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, but those two performances stick out, Mahler 5 and, and Mass B minor. I would say other ones, but those are bad performances. Or <laughs> not bad performances, but something that happened to me that I was like, oh my gosh, you know. Well, <laughs> golly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, do you, my follow-up was going to be, do you have any memorable performances that are perhaps memorable in a bad way? Oh my gosh, yes. The, the, the first one that comes to mind, um, you know, I moved from Mississippi to Colorado, and Colorado is high altitude, uh, really is like a 4,600 feet, it's dry, dry, like the Sahara Desert. So, you know, I, I was at UNC playing with the faculty quintet. We were doing tambour, the Cooperan for quintet. And um, actually, was, I was a little proud. I was like, man, I have this amazing read, and it's great, and I'm going to sound like a million bucks, and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and I remember Kilmer telling me, don't ever go on stage with only one read. But silly me, you know, I was like, uh, I, I, I just forgot all about that. You had to take your whole ray case on stage in case something happens. So I had this amazing read, but in the, in the stage that we played, it was so insanely dry. I think it was like 14% dry or something. Gah. Yeah. So I start playing, you know, the tumble, you know, the, and then I was like, man, this read is getting harder and harder. Oh. And I was out. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I, I finished the first movement, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what in the world? And, you know, reads there, they change while you're playing in seconds. It's just, like, very 
traumatic. High respect for all boys in Colorado, all my friends there. <laughs> um, and then we started the, we skipped the second movement, so we went to the third movement. Uh, you know, that beautiful theme. Uh-huh. I started playing and nothing came out. And I was like, what is going on? And then, and they, they kept playing. And, and, and the flutists were looking at me, you know, everybody was looking at me because they were thinking maybe her reed is dry or maybe she's very nervous. And I kept blowing and nothing was coming out of that instrument. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this oboe cracked in half. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and they kept playing. And I looked at the reed and it was split in half. <gasps> all the way to the bottom. And I was just looking at the read. I was like, this is not happening. This is not happening to me right now. So they finished playing, you know, the, the movement without the upper line, which is God. the <laughs> And then uh, I ju- we just stopped and I just got up and I said, uh, I'm sorry. We're ha- I'm having some technical difficulties. Uh, you know, my wrist bleeding half, the Colorado <laughs> weather. I love Colorado. Be right back. <laughs> and I went backstage and wet my wrist real quick, you know, and I, finish playing with a horrible bright read uh, so learn lesson learn always go on stage with all your read case and at least four reads wet <laughs> that is traumatizing yeah yeah so I'm st- I still have trauma from that I'm, I'm very paranoid now but <laughs> That's, I was like while you were telling that story I was like well surely she'd be able to muscle through it somehow but not if it's uh, cracked all the way down no, no there's, there's no way <laughs> Oh no, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. So happy memories from Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> well, other than always bring your reed case on stage and have four reeds wet, um, what is some of the best reed making advice that you've received or what reed making advice might you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, I have I have had a lot of teachers in my life, um, but the the one man, you know, that is the guru of remaking, the god of remaking in this country is Mr. Richard Kilmer. And uh, he takes remaking, um, his approach to remaking is very simple. Uh, it's not too analytical uh, and is, is, is very precise and it goes down to the point. Um, so I think my, the, the way I make reads and everything that I learned from him uh, it's also to be more more relaxed about reeds. Their living organism is a grass. It changes, you know. He used to tell me every every reed is different. It's like if you have different girlfriends or boyfriends, just treat them differently. <laughs> um, you know. So yeah, he used to tell me that, and um, you know, he measures each piece and uses the RAS gouging machine. Um, and he uses just Rigatti cane, you know, simple cane. You don't have to spend millions of dollars to get this fancy brand cane. Um, he shapes it, ties it, makes it read right there. Uh, like he, he can make it in four minutes, maybe three. I don't know these days. <laughs> um, and then just start scraping, make it vibrate, do the cut in, you know, cut in the back and make, make it vibrate. Um, so I, I, I think I learned a lot from from his way to make reads in Colorado, it was a little different because um, I did have to change diameter. They just close so much. So I have to use 10 to 10.5, sometimes 9.5 to 10 mm-hmm. uh, to make to, for them to open up. And I had to scrape more on the back than usual. Um, you know, so it's different. Uh, but I have 
have learned different uh, tips for remaking from all of my teachers. My teacher in Costa Rica, the one I studied with in, in, in the Victoriano Lopez, his name is Jose Angel Abrego, and he's the professor of the University of Costa Rica. He taught me, you scrape in the very bottom of the reed for the low notes. I'm like, really? And it worked. So I'm still doing that to this day. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I just, I take from everybody where it can work for me. Um, so I'm not, I, I don't go too analytical on the read making process, but I make sure that I follow the steps that you're supposed to follow uh, and have, um, you know, a working gouging machine, uh, the shaper tip that you like, a good staple and a sharp knife, of course. Um, and for me at this point in my life, I already have my, my, <clears throat> I already have what I use, like my set, you know, mm-hmm. Um, but I told the students, just change one variable at a time. Otherwise, you go crazy because there's like 20,000 variables for Obo. Mm-hmm. I, I do reads the day. You know, you can make a read in 10 minutes. But also, I can do the process of tying one read, wait, wait the next day, do one part, add the back, add the heart, and then do it like in four days. Um, in Colorado, that worked a lot, like in high altitude places, because the read gets used to being mm. being tied and accommodating to being a read. Um, also after you split, let the cane set for hours or a whole day. I remember Kilmer telling me, what happens if they split you in half in three parts? You have to get used to be, you know, split in three parts. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So, you know, cane changes, you know, and you just have to, um, you have to just treat it differently. And, and, and I don't know, it's just a grass, it's a living organism Sometimes we forget that, that it will change with weather, with rain, with cold. So I, I teach my students to have a journal, um, what staple is working, what gouging machine they use, um, how long you tie this, this shaper tip, you know. So we, we go through that, especially with freshmen, sophomores, when they're still learning mm-hmm. to make reads. Uh, we have remaking classes to make, make, them, make it fun for them, you know. Some people don't like making reads and... Um, but it just comes with the business, right? You have to make right. reads. Yeah. I don't need that answer your question. I went off track, off tangent. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I know is that when IDRS is in, is in Boulder, I'm going to call you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I'll give you, I'll tell you the, the tips. <laughs> what advice would, do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh my gosh. I think... Like I said before, have clear goals of what you want to do. Um, I think the reality of the music degrees right now is very different than when I was a student 15, 20 years ago. Um, I think if if they go into a performance degree, they have to play at a high level from the very beginning. Um, If they do a music education degree, they have to work. They have to like working with, you know, uh, young people and being a band director and really knowing your craft. Um, and I think these days students should have other things to do, like be good at theory, try to learn more about music history, learn piano really well, uh, learn to sing, take some conducting classes. So I think as a musician right now, you have to have other assets, not only your instrument. And I will tell the students to be very disciplined uh, you can have talent, but without discipline, it doesn't go very far. Right. Um, so they have to be very disciplined, very dedicated. Uh, I tell my students, focus, focus, you know. 
Um, I told my students, when you're not practicing, someone else is practicing 20, 20, uh, 22 hours a day and you're not. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think it's just, um, I, I think know what you want. Um, and also I think it's very important to learn from the bad experiences and learning how to fail. I see a lot of documentaries with the top athletes in the, wor- in the world. Um, Serena Williams, you know, Usain Bolt, for example, mm-hmm. the Jamaican um, runner, the one gold medal three times, right? Mm-hmm. And his coach told him, you have to have very clear in your mind where you want to go, where you want to be. And you also have to learn from the mistakes and from your failures. And you have to learn because if you don't learn how to fail, how you're going to learn how to win. Um, and that's Lucian Bolt, one of the be- best athletes in the world right now. Right. Well, he retired, but you know. Um, so I think it's telling the student they're going to be ups and downs. You have to develop a little bit of thick skin. My students laugh at me because I told them, okay, cockatrail skin, iguana skin, on top of that turtle, turtle screen. And then, I don't know, like another dragon skin, that thick. That's how thick your skin should be. <laughs> because there, there's going to be people that are going to disappoint you. You're going to have failures. You're going to have, you know, moments that is very sad that you're going to be wondering, why am I doing this? Um, and, and, you know, you have to be, you have to have your goal really clear in your mind where you want to go. And to get there, what's going what's gonna to make it to, for you to get there? There's going to be ups and downs and, you know, turns and there might be a mountain. There might be like a humongous, you know, cliff. <laughs> you might fall <laughs> from a tree. You might fall from a river and there were, there's not going to be water in the river, but you have to get up again. <laughs> um, so I think for students, they, they, you know, the young generation, they, they have to work really hard because right now the competition um, is, is different than in my days, you know. So you have to know your craft really well, be literate about everything, not only as a musician, but know everything that is happening. Um, you know, so that's what I, I will advise uh, the young students that are coming as freshmen now. <laughs> Yuri, thank you so much for this awesome interview. Uh, to close, I'd love to hear what you have coming up for the academic year that you're excited about. What performances on the horizon are you especially geared up for? Yeah, right now uh, we just played um, a recital with my colleagues, my fl- the flute professor at Baylor, uh, Dr. Daniel, Charlotte Daniel, and Dr. Shoemaker, and we want to um, do a recital for flute, oboe, and bassoon uh, early on, I think September, October. And then I'm going to go to Oklahoma University to play a recital there, teach a master class uh, with my, my great friend, Dan Schwartz. <laughs> Yay, Dan. Hey, yeah, we were classmates at Eastman, so uh, um, I adore Dan. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do a faculty recital in November, play with my colleagues. I'm going to do Francais, Trio, Leffler, Clara Schumann, and something else. I forgot. I don't know yet. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we wake up symphony. We have some very great repertoire. We're going to play Daphne and Chloe, Rachmaninoff dances, uh, Beethoven five and Strauss uh, and Tulu Spiegel. Sorry, I cannot pronounce it well. So, uh, I have to make a lot of reads. <laughs> yeah, those are some of the performances uh, I have coming up. Thank you so much, Yuri. This was such a delight to talk to you. We really appreciate you spending some time with us on Double Read Dish. Oh, thank you so much. And I just want to say thank you to both of you. And I just forgot to mention that I 
uh, one of my mentors is also Professor Abrego in Costa Rica. I forgot to mention him, so I don't want to forget. Uh, thank you so much to him also. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed that interview with Yuri Alvarez. Please do not forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, SoundCloud, and anywhere that you get your podcasts. And hey, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on iTunes, we always love to get your guys' feedback. Galit, who's coming down that pike? Our next illustrious <laughs> guest... <laughs> is Kim Woolley, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of Southern Mississippi and my friend and colleague. Very excited to have her on. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs>